1859, Charles Darwin publishes his Origin of Species. And basically, everyone was like, hey, I found evolution. We don't have to believe in God anymore. And of course, some Christians, you know, they, they gave into the lies. They accepted Darwinism. But most Christians obviously responded negatively. To atheists, Christianity has hindered science. To Christians, the question is, should we listen to man's word or God's word? That's perfect. Absolutely right. Well, maybe I should nuance a couple. The more I think, it's probably completely wrong. Everything you just said. So, yeah, let's 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 maybe back up a bit and completely reframe the classic story that we've all sort of inherited. Hello, everyone. This is what your pastor didn't tell you. Today, we're interviewing Seth Hart. We're, we're going to be talking about the topic of how did Christianity respond to Darwinism. Seth, can you give us a brief background of yourself as far as a summary of what you're also working on? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Zach. So uh, what I work on currently, so I'm at the University of Durham, I'm a PhD student, and it's sort of a takeoff of where I, what I was working on in Oxford for my master's. And I basically look at teleology, which is the study of final causes, purposes, and ends. And uh, within most uh, fields of the natural sciences, teleology, sort of, you don't ask what the purpose of a planet is, you don't ask what the purpose of an atom is, but you can ask what the purpose of, say, a wing is, or an eyeball, or if a, we discover some new feature on a fossil, one of the first things the paleontologist could ask is, I wonder what that's there for, why it has that feature. And so I ask those sorts of questions and ultimately arrive at a place that say, this is actually comes from a theological place of seeing creatures as purposive, in-driven, goal-oriented, and then asking whether or not biology can even survive as a distinct discipline outside of this theological framework that it's inherited. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, what we're going to be talking about is kind of something you already wrote about on Capturing Christianity's blog. Uh, one was titled uh, Christianity's War on Darwinism, and the other was Christian Did, Christian, Did American Christians Wage War on Darwinism? So that's what we're going to be talking about today, and those will be linked in the description. Awesome. So, you can you can thank uh, Cameron for those titles. Oh, nice. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So what, we're, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you a summary of how Christianity responded to evolution in Darwin, and then we're just going to see how it takes us. Sure. All right. So in 1859, Charles Darwin publishes his Origin of Species. And basically, everyone was like, hey, I found evolution. We don't have to believe in God anymore. And of course, some Christians, you know, they, they gave into the lies, they accepted Darwinism. But most Christians obviously responded negatively. To atheists, Christianity has hindered science. To Christians, the question is, should we listen to man's word or God's word? That's perfect. Absolutely right. Well, maybe I should nuance a couple. The more I think, it's probably completely wrong, everything you just said. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's maybe back up a bit and completely reframe the classic story that we've all sort of inherited. All right, let's do it. Uh, so um, start from the beginning. When were the first versions of evolution created? And can you give a super brief description of them? Yeah, so um, when it, the very first versions, it's real tough to know because as far back as Empedocles, we have in Aristotle's, uh, uh, his book, Physics, and in 2.8, Physics 2.8, we have a discussion of Empedocles, who seems to have something that some interpreters see as a proto version of natural selection. And so, and of course, Aristotle disagrees with that uh, and lays out his arguments, but we can go back to nearly the font of Western thought and see evolutionary theories. And then as you go through into the Middle Ages with Al-Jahiz, um, 
we see David Hume in his book, uh, Dialogues Concerning the Natural Religions, entertaining something quite close to natural selection. And during the, the real explosion of, of ideas of evolution really occurred around uh, the turn of the 19th century. So when you get into there, this is when you get people like uh, Goethe, who's more famously known for his poetry and his stories, uh, but he was proposing something that Darwin himself said he benefited from, a very, a very uh, distinct evolutionary view. And then this was influenced people like Kielmeyer and Oaken and Richard Owen, who's most famous for the discovery of dinosaurs, so we can all thank him for that, or the naming of dinosaurs, I should say. So we definitely have these evolutionary ideas popping up around the turn of the 19th century. Most famous of all is a person that most uh, that more people know is is Lamarck. Now, when Lamarck comes along and Lamarckism, and Lamarckism that really puts uh, evolutionary theory in a bigger spotlight than it had had before. Because now you start having mechanisms, like coherent mechanisms. Because the reason evolutionary theory was nearly a minority report for most of history was not because of some theological reasons. We see even uh, uh, St. Augustine entertaining evolutionary ideas uh, all the way back in the fifth century. Um, what The reason was mostly because uh, there just wasn't a good coherent mechanism given. But with Lamarck, that began to change. And then, of course, we have Robert Chambers, who anonymously, anonymously published The Vestiges of Natural History, uh, which began to really bubble up the conversation. So that by the time Darwin, uh, Charles Darwin, because, of course, his grandpa Erasmus Darwin had also been an advocate of evolution, by the time Charles Darwin published, it was really within the air that, uh, of evolutionary theory. What everyone was trying to do was find the actual mechanism. And I can go into reasons why it was sort of on the rise. And the reason evolutionary theory eventually got accepted had very little to do with Darwin. It wasn't until about the 30s or 40s that Darwinism itself became the primary mechanism with the modern synthesis. It became the, seen as the primary mechanism by which evolution happened. So that was the 1930s that Darwinism got accepted, is that right? 30s and 40s is whenever the modern synthesis really took over. Okay, interesting. We'll, we'll get into that later as we go. Uh, what was the Christian response to this throughout the years? The Christian response, well, because evolutionary theory was just, just a sort of idea out there, it was never really, that you don't get a lot of commentary on Christians from it, because it, in a very similar way that it's tough to find Christian remarks today on, say, Lamarckism, even though you might have a few advocates for Lamarck out there, right? Evolutionary theory writ large wasn't a very popular idea. There just wasn't a good mechanism to talk about it. Now, what's interesting is the few comments we do have, say, from Augustine, with when you look at the causal theory, which is one part of my um, dissertation, so I'll, I'll refrain from talking too much because I could talk forever about it, is that it was per perfectly compatible with allowing for an evolutionary process. This division that you see in Aquinas between primary and secondary causes was perfect. Was a perfect setup for allowing evolutionary theory to happen in a way that didn't sort of demean God's own causal activity. What's really interesting is actually the downfall in early modernity of the causal system of the medievals that set up this sort of creationist versus evolutionary fight, something that couldn't have even happened for most of Christian history, which is an unfortunate consequence. Um, but uh, as far as Christian reactions, once we move into the 1800s and stuff uh, and get to the real 
the juicy parts of history that we hear with Darwin. What's interesting is that the Darwini Darwinian uh, thesis itself was seen as a certain form of theology, that there were two competing views of theology at this time. And neither of it, it wasn't a, an idea of science versus religion. It was two different kinds of religion and two different kinds of science that were competing. One was very okay with seeing God imminent acting within the world. And that, of course, is what you see with someone like William Paley. William Paley, whose God is actively creating, it's who Darwin wrote against. And that's where special creationism comes from. The other form of theology strongly resisted that, but it wasn't for it wasn't for uh, scientific reasons. It wasn't even for philosophical reasons. It was for theological reasons. Now, to give a bit of background, when Newton proposed his ideas, he said he, he had noticed a problem, which was the orbit of planets. They didn't seem like they could continue on for an infinite period of time. So he thought God came in and fixed the orbits in order to so that they, the planets wouldn't go ricocheting around and eventually collide into the sun or, or lose their orbits. So... God had to be inserted into Newtonianism to fix a problem. And Newton himself was completely fine with this. Now, of course, later thinkers were quite uncomfortable with this because it seemed to say that God himself made an imperfect universe. And they saw God as the divine lawgiver. Now, if these laws weren't perfect, you're seen to making God less than what he could be as an, he's an imperfect creator. And so what's funny is, is that naturalism, this idea that the universe is a self-sufficient working natural mechanism that God doesn't have to interfere with, was originally posited as a way to defend God, God and his perfection, not as a way to get God out of nature. And that's something historians have, it's, they're sort of arriving at a universal consensus now, is that Darwinism is now being seen as a work of natural theology. Early, later Darwin was an agnostic, but early Darwin saw his work as a work of natural theology, as a way of showing that nature itself didn't require God coming in and fixing things, God coming in and putting new species in, which was one of the ideas at the time, is that God would repopulate the earth every time creatures go extinct. Because for some reason, when God created the world, you know, creatures would go extinct, so God had to come in and fix it. That was an uncomfortable feeling for a lot of these theologians and scientists. And so, what ultimately happened is, is that this idea that early Christians were somehow opposed to Darwin's theory is completely wrong. What ultimately happens is, is that it's just a competition between two different theologies. And quite often, this is why Christians uh, became Darwin's greatest defenders. Wow, that's extremely fascinating. And uh, I'm sure that'll be a big surprise for a lot of people here. Um, let's backtrack a little bit. As yeah. far as before Darwin, um, you had all these different, you know, or theoretical or whatever views on evolution, would you say that uh, Christians were for this during the time or like just completely against it? Like what was yeah. Christianity's general opinion on that? Yeah, yeah, I did get a bit ahead of myself, didn't I? Um, yeah, so when it came to like Lamarck and it came to like saltation views and these other views of evolutionary theory, it's real tough to say exactly the real Christian position because most of the people proposing this were Christians uh, Lamarck himself is it was not, but the, the commentary on it doesn't show any sort of hostility, which is quite fascinating. And we could say the same thing about Charles Lyell and uniformitarianism. You go a bit before and George Cuvier and catastrophism. These were competing geological views, but both denied a six-day creation and thought their world was quite old. But all the evidence seems to indicate that this positing of an old earth, Christians seem to be completely comfortable 
with this idea. This literal interpretation of Genesis didn't hold the same sort of weight that it did uh, as it does now for quite a few people in the United States and the United States Christianity today. Uh, there were uh, obviously proponents of that, but we don't see any sort of conflict or clash emerging at this point. So that's quite interesting. These earlier views of evolution seem to sort of rise up, um, find fertile ground, find discussion within uh, Christianity. And there doesn't seem to be much of a conflict. And quite often it would be like, for instance, Lamarck. Lamarck's uh, ideas of evolution were wholly theistic because he saw two competing forces of evolution, one sort of within a species to adapt it to its environment, and the other sort of rising it up towards a teleological end, which he saw God sort of sitting at the end at. So God is very much a part of Lamarck's ideas, which is probably why these conflicts weren't a big deal for Christians, because at the end of the day, you still you still have the basic tenets of theology could easily be fit. In fact, they're a part of it. It sounded like you said Lamarckian evolution like almost had God been part of the, the thing or did I miss? Yeah. Yeah. So he wasn't a Christian, but he what was a theist. Oh, okay. That's very yeah. fascinating. Oh, yes. Wow. So atheism huh. and agnostic agnosticism wasn't invented by the time it was actually Thomas Huxley who invented the very concept because uh, of agnosticism, which Darwin later adopted early Darwin was a theist. Yeah. Um, and we can get into why that transition happened in Darwin's life. But basically, yeah. So Lamarck doubted sort of the central tenets of Christianity, though he, like many in his era, was leaning towards deism, this sort of natural religion stripped of these special revelations, um, a sort of sort of baseline religion that they thought all people sort of naturally arrived at. Right. So it sounds like you're saying that one of the biggest founders for evolution actually believed in God. Yes. That's very fascinating to me. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> and this is how many years before Darwin? Uh, Lamarck would have been about, oh gosh, 50 years or so. He would have been uh, or that right at that turn of the century. Wow. Okay. All right. And um, and that, how exactly, so I know you were talking about the evolutionary side, but where does the, you know, that whole age of the earth thing come in? You have like Charles Lyell and everyone else. Yeah. So uh, as the as the sciences began to bloom, right? So this is going to be um, go the late 1700s going into the early 1800s. This is when the field of geology really began to take off. One and one of the problems was, and you get a bunch of counter evidence right here because you have like Lord Kelvin showing that the Earth couldn't have been old. Darwin himself thought that was a uh, saw saw that as the strongest objection to his own idea. They didn't know about like thermo thermodynamics quite like they do today. Um, but then you have other people like George Cuvier, who in the latest, later part of the 18th century proposed catastrophism, right? And this is this idea that the world would go along for a bit, a great catastrophe would unfold. And this is how we have these sort of geological layers, which were slowly being discovered. Then come around uh, a little, few years later, dinosaurs were discovered. You have ichthyosaurus, these creatures, these sea creatures being discovered and these were considered uh antediluvian creatures so catastrophism was looking better and better that the world had many different periods and that the bible only described the latest of these periods or also emerging in this uh, around this time was the idea of a gap theory that between genesis 1 1 and 1 2 was a, was a large gap so there is some theological speculation but what you don't really see is people sort of fighting these ideas what immediately happened is is these ideas were readily accepted. There was a uh, very early on, um, 
in the scientific revolution, in fact, before the scientific revolution, Francis Bacon, the father of the scientific method, proposed that we should never deny the witness of nature. And the whole point of our investigations is to bring theology and our natural investigations into an alignment together. So you see these two, uh, you see these two views coming together quite naturally as they saw for them. There wasn't this idea of a conflict. It was, no, we're going to investigate nature so that we can better interpret scripture. And then of course, Lyell comes along and he proposes uniformitarianism, which is denies these catastrophes had any major role in the uh, formation. So it, it in the formation of the uh, geological record. And so you see these as two comp competing ideas, catastrophism and uniformitarianism sort of competing side by side uh, for part uh, for part of the early uh, history of geology. But what's interesting is neither of them were six-day creationists. Both accepted the antiquity of the Earth. And so this, as, as basically as soon as the scientific evidence started to warrant an old Earth, because of people like Bacon, uh, the, feel, the Christianity, especially conservative Protestants, uh, conservative and liberal Protestants, really began to embrace this early on. It wasn't seen as the sort of conflict that has arisen in the past 50, 60 years. Wow, that's actually pretty crazy. Okay. And so you mentioned... Um... To keep going, you mentioned that uh, you know, Lamarck, you know, he did believe in God um, and he proposed his idea of evolution. And then Charles Darwin comes along. What would you say is the difference between the two there? Oh, between Lamarck and Darwin? Yeah. yeah so these are two competing. So these would be seen as two competing theologies, um, which is a real interesting way to put it, because most people see them as two different sciences. Right. So Lamarck's famous illustration is uh, the giraffe. Right. How did a giraffe form? Well, it started from a horse-like creature that couldn't reach the branches. So it stretched its neck as far as it could. And then its offspring would have longer necks. So it's this inheritance of this acquired characteristics. Whatever the, uh, whatever the parent did, the offspring would inherit these acquired characteristics. And what's interesting is Darwin himself, ultimately, in order to... Because natural selection only works on variation that already exists. So Darwin himself accepted a form of Lamarckism uh, uh, near the end of his life, he supplemented his ideas with it. So he didn't see these as competing ideas. But that was uh, Lamarck's idea. But he also saw the evolutionary process as not just the inheritance of acquired characteristics, but as life itself as sort of oriented in an upward trajectory towards humanity. So there's this teleological, this final cause, this purpose goal. And he saw God sort of sitting at the end of this as things reaching out, trying to arrive at that. And what's also interesting is the co-discoverer of natural selection, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who co-discovered, we, we don't talk about him as much as we do Darwin. Alfred Russell Wallace arrived at something very similar uh, uh, to Lamarck, a very similar theological viewpoint. So yeah, that's something we, don't, we, only, we only focus on Darwin, but the co-discoverer of, uh, co of natural selection, of Darwinism, uh, was a theist and saw his view theistically. So that's Lamarckism. It was a theistic view, but it saw God acting as a sort of teleological end, sort of eminently within the universe, drawing things toward it. Well, Darwin didn't like that idea. Darwin, early Darwin, when he was still a theist, when he was still Christian, wanted that idea of a self-sufficient universe, wanted to see nature itself as enclosed, sort of enclosed, and that itself, the very evolutionary process itself, as bespeaking the glory of God, as bespeaking the fact that it's a well-run, a well-tuned oiled machine, that it doesn't need the clockmaker to come in and tinker with the parts in order for it to function. 
Um, and a lot of historians up until very recently have tried to downplay this natural theological aspect to Darwin's theory. But there's now the emerging consensus that no, these are this was integral part of early Darwin's thought. Later on, he would backtrack on that. And that's where most of the focus has been. But he saw his work as an element, as an aspect of natural theology. So these are two competing theologies, natural selection as being the mechanism where God, God can sort of stand back and allow the process to happen on its own versus Lamarck, God is imminent to the process and the process can't happen without God acting as drawing all things toward himself, towards his own perfection. And of course, well, it sounds like Lamarckian evolution didn't get, uh, well, I guess I'm confused a little bit because on one hand, it sounded like Christians didn't totally accept Lamarckian evolution. Mm -hmm. And then, but it also doesn't sound like it contradicts, I guess, mainstream how they saw the Bible then. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it, they didn't completely accept it. And that I think is the big, the big point, which is what did the science at the time say? At the time, science was very much in its infancy. So when you actually look at Darwin, when you look at Lamarck, most of the conversation came down to what does the scientific evidence warrant for that? At the time, there was very limited evidence, as you could probably suspect, that if that offspring inherit characteristics that their parents pass on. There were some reports hmm. of that, but there wasn't obviously very good evidence. And today we know that there, there has been a bit of a rebirth of Lamarckism. Um, but today we, we, we recognize why that is. It's, you know, if I dye my hair a certain color, I'm not increasing the chances that my kid will have that color hair. So there, there, is an, there was a sort of empirical limitation on Lamarckism. And also people like George uh, Mivart, and he was in conversation with Darwin, but these were the conversations that were happening. George Mivart uh, pointed out that the gaps in the fossil record seemed to uh, push against any sort of gradualistic process. So a lot of Christians in response to that, people like James Orr accepted, did accept evolution, but they accepted a view called saltations, which is this rapid change, this rapid real quick mutation so that species rapidly emerged. While others saw creatures as just too complex, such as William Paley and the children of William Paley, the people, the intellectual children of William Paley, continued on in this idea of special creationism. But all of these were posited because they thought this is what the science points us to at this time. There was this conversation. And what was interesting, again, is, is all of these were seen at, as elements of natural theology. These were all seen to support a different view of God, but all of them did support God. So, you know, for instance, do you want an imminent God of Lamarck? Do you want a God who stands far off, as in Darwin, who has a perfectly formed machine? Or do you want a God who occasionally tinkers with it, like Paley? And that was the conversation going on. There wasn't this sharp line between science, the scientific theories and the religious theories, they both sort of melded together in most of these thinkers. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds crazy. Okay, so so obviously we have this idea that, you know, God, um, that evolution, God, are definitely something you can't do. And it doesn't seem like that's was what it was back then. But uh, something that we've all, a lot of us might be have heard is the idea of the, uh, like this Wilberforce-Huxley debate yeah. over... Um, like, you know, apparently right after Darwin's book came out where Wilberforce stood on the Bi Wilberforce stood on the Bible and where Huxley stood on Darwinism. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's the story we've inherited. Okay. The fame debate. I've actually been to the spot where the debate happened. Oh, dang. Um, a okay. nice little plaque hangs up there. Okay, all right, cool. Um, you think we'll have time to watch this four-minute video? And yeah, definitely. Okay, cool, all right. Mr. Darwin claims that every living thing, every fish, plant, fungus, fly, descendants of the same common ancestor. Such a notion is absolutely incompatible with the word of God. Let's pause it there. What you got for me? So, well, first off, a little background. So this is the thing that has epitomized, that has put this debate into our imagination. And what's interesting is in their portrayal of this debate, they relied on the notes taken later by Huxley on his own recollections of the debate. So what's in, yeah, so we'll get into this a little bit, but what's interesting is once you actually add in other people, including people who were friendly to Huxley, you end up with such a contradictory and weird view of this debate that historians have no idea what actually happened. But there are a few key things that I can point out. The first is, is that this speech right here is not what happened. Samuel Wilberforce was not someone who said, this is the word of God. Charles Darwin's theory contradicts it. Therefore, we cannot, you know, we cannot embrace Darwin. Quotations from uh, Samuel Wilberforce that we have, have him scathingly, he's scathing of people who thought that way. He thought he did not accept Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection, but he did so because that was the scientific consensus of the time. He did so, and we'll see it here in a second, because the greatest biologist in the world, Richard Owen, told had strong objections to it. And we'll see how contradictory this, even in this own portrayal is, uh, of the actual debate, is whether or not, because he, he later appeals to science, to the scientist, in fact. So... To, to portray him as this old curmudgeonly bishop who stands on the word of God and anything that contradicts it is, is to be thrown out. That's a completely wrong portrayal of Samuel Wilberforce. Man was made in the image of God and redeemed by the eternal son. Natural selection is an ingenious theory for denying the working and therefore the existence of the creator. In fact, the human brain differs markedly from that of all other mammals. Unfortunately, my Lord Bishop, you have been misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> if we are unprejudiced judges, we have to admit that there is as little interval as animals between the gorilla and the man, as there is between the gorilla and the baboon. All right, pause real quick. So he's about to say that he's misinformed because guess uh, guess who he's referencing? Richard Owen. Uh, because Samuel Wilberforce, being a purveyor of the scientists, scientists himself, there wasn't a strong distinction between most of the most of the scientists of the day were also clergymen, and so Samuel Wilberforce had 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 a sort of interest in the sciences. He was trained by Richard Owen, 
on and coached on his debate in this debate. Now, Richard Owen, of course, was also an evolutionist, but he wasn't a Darwinian. He had his own views on how evolution happened. So again, we're seeing that this is not a, just a simple religion versus evolution as this doc, as this apparent documentary, you know, is trying to, or historical recreation, I should say, this historical recreation is trying to portray it is, you know, immediately, you know, he says it contradicts the word of God. And then he appeals to someone who doesn't, he appeals to Richard Owen, who doesn't take the days of Genesis literally. He appeal, <laughs> he has some sort of other evolutionary idea. So it makes no sense. If you know the history, this just makes no sense at all. Um, and of course, Huxley hated Richard Owen. They were sort of scientific rivals, which is why hmm. there was such a bristly, this sort of, in, when he started quoting Richard Owen's research, it sort of bristled into a very sort of antagonistic debate, as we'll see here in a sec. It is speech alone and not some spiritual gift that makes man a reasonable being. That is the source of our unlimited intellectual progress, but that does not disguise the fact that to the very root and foundation of his nature, man is one with the rest of the organic world. No one, no one who has ever dissected the brain of an ape agrees with Professor Owen. His That's right. Are wrong. <laughs> so we'll pause real quick that is that quotation right there that's supposed to be one of the two two or three famous quotations from this debate is and apparently he he whispered to Joseph, I believe it was Joseph Hooker. He whispered to one of his co-debaters at the time, because it wasn't just these two debating. It was actually a host of people um, having a discussion that he whispered, God has given him into my hands. Yeah. And of course, yeah, here sets up the great, you know, the great, you know, uh, 19th century version of an, you know, of, of like of owning him uh, that we see like right here. So go ahead. through your grandfather or your grandmother that you claim descent from an ape. Mm. I stood up very quiet, very grave, and said my say with perfect good temper. If the question is put to me, would I rather have a miserable ape for a grandfather? Or a man, highly intelligent, possessed of great means of influence, and yet who employed these faculties and that influence for the mere purpose of introducing ridicule into a grave scientific discussion, I unhesitatingly affirm my preference for the ape. You didn't. I said that or something. All right, we can pause it there. So that is the great, you know, 19th century burn of all time. You know, one of the greatest 19th century burns. By Huxley's own account, it was, a, a, you know, it was a great burn. It won the audience in his favor. Uh, you look at other accounts of that. It doesn't seem to be that way. Uh, what's also interesting is this uh, recreation portrays the audience very heavily, very heavily on the side of Wilberforce and not Huxley. But of course, that was not true. The audience was actually quite split. Um, 
there were people going for each side. So, and uh, what uh, what I also find interesting is they you see them sort of cheering and you know uh, whenever Wilberforce gets up and says that famous line of which side you know which side do you have an ape are you descended from an ape from that we do know was not a well received line we know that when Wilberforce said that, that actually would have been breaking with the Victorian etiquette of the day because it had a sort of sexual connotation to it, a bestiality connotation to that. Whether he meant it or not, we know that's how it was interpreted. So this is one of the things we can dissect from the debate. So it's not exact, that's why, you know, supposedly Huxley said he's delivered him into my hands is because basically Wilber, not because he had a great comeback, but mostly because Wilberforce had made a mistake in his etiquette. Hmm. You attack a live bishop in public. Have you no respect for the purple waistcoat? Lady Brewster fainted, had to be carried from the room. And then Admiral Fitzroy got to his feet. Fitzroy. <laughs> something straight from like what you'd hear at a 1960s Baptist church, you know, something like, that. <laughs> like uh, completely anachronistic. It's not, yeah. it's not true to the uh, conversation at all. There mm. was a fainting lady, but she didn't faint because of some amazing line from Wilberforce or Huxley. She fainted because it was a tiny room. Uh, it was the middle of June and it was far too warm that people were beginning to pass out. So, but of course, okay. in, in Huxley's own portrayal, it was because of his own brilliance that people were uh, fainting and losing consciousness. So, <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting, so we now have this. Thanks. It's kind of like Inherit the Wind in the Scopes trial, if you know, if anyone knows about that. And the Scopes trial was, uh, it, it, if you look at the actual history of it, it's kind of ambiguous about you know, like how we should interpret this as, a, as an aspect of science versus religion, but ultimately that didn't matter. The next paper, uh, next day, the papers got a hold of it, created the story, and then of course the play and ultimately the movie The Inherit the Wind came out. And now we all remember the Scopes trial as the trouncing of religious fundamentalism by the scientific rational rationalists. So, oh, totally. yeah, and that this movie is did the exact same thing for the Wilberforce Huxley debate. Because at the time it wasn't well regarded, and how do we how do we know this? Is because there's not we again we don't have many historical sources from it. It wasn't that big of a debate. Very few people commented upon this, and the most telling is the fact that John William Draper, John William Draper, if you remember, along with Andrew Dixon White, was the inventor. Is considered the inventor of the conflict thesis. The conflict thesis being that religion and uh, religion and science are on constant conflict. He was one of the presenters who was present at the debate. And he said, he, he said absolutely nothing about this debate as an instance of religion versus science. That's an odd omission. Why would the person who's, whose very career, so his very, his very uh, agenda is driven by showing this conflict and showing the triumph of science over religion fail to mention one of the biggest debates if it really was in which religion in which science showed itself triumphant over religion so obviously something is amiss in our understanding of it and what makes it even worse is the fact that at the end of the debate some of darwin's own supporters such a, as uh, henry baker tristam who was the first to apply uh darwinism to camouflage actually uh, began to doubt darwin's theory 
Darwin himself, in response to Wilberforce's objections, said that they were some of the best objections that he had seen. So all of this just makes absolutely no sense of what uh, of the historical data and what we do actually know of the debate. However little we actually do have recalled from the testimonies that were there, all none of it fits. It was not historically influential. It was not a trouncing of religion, uh, of religion by science. Both sides were considered theological. And so that's just at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's just a, a completely wrong and as you saw, anachronistic reading of the debate. If the Huxley-Wilberforce debate wasn't all as cracked up to be, uh, and Darwin was pretty much rejected at first based on evidential reasons, uh, even by non-Christians, uh, at what point did we see it start to gain traction? We saw it start to gain traction. So Darwin himself continued to write, natural selection was debated as a possible minor mechanism, but not the main mechanism. Uh, Darwin, Darwin, Darwinism itself never really posited what, what we call Darwinism. It doesn't pos to posit a method for variation. It simply works on existing variation, right? So we needed the addition of mutations into that. So once we get into the 20th century, we have a rediscovery of, of genetics, these genetic theories of the gene. And then once we get into the modern synthesis, thanks to people uh, like Theodosius Dobzhansky, uh, George Gaylord Simpson and a few other figures really began to synthesize uh, genetic theories that were emerging at the time with Darwinism and gave it a sort of mathematical robustness that it never had before. And this began was called neo-Darwinism because it was very different from what Darwin himself posited, but it retained the name Darwinism in honor of the fact that natural selection still plays a vital, pivotal role. So it, 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 that is uh, shocks a lot of people who don't know the history of science quite often is the Darwinism we have today is very different from what Dar Darwin himself thought, you know, and posited when he first put that out there. So it was around the 30s or 40s. Now, it is within a, because, uh, within about 15 to 20 years of that, now that the conflict thesis is taking off, that scientists began to read Darwinism in a very ateleological and anti-teleological way, seeing it as com competing with religious explanations. So uh, again, so it was and it was really at the centennial around 1959 that these start coming out. And what happens lo and behold, two years later, in 1961, the Genesis flood by Henry Morris and John, Whit uh, John Whitcomb comes out two years after the fact. So as a reaction to Darwinism being trumpeted as an anti-Christian, anti-religious, uh, anti-religious belief system, that's when we really see it begin to take off. There were some figures, again, before. We can talk about Charles Hodges. Uh, I think he would probably be one of the biggest figures. But mostly the theological conversation wasn't anything analogous to what we have today. That's very fascinating. But um, but we also had like a really positive response from Christians like, like Asa Gray, mm -hmm. and then also negative responses by Agizis. Um, could you talk about those? Yeah, yeah. So I, I uh, there's there is a debate between Louis uh, Louis Agassiz and and Asa Gray that we can draw. These are two American scientists, two of the most prominent American scientists. Uh, Asa Gray is usually credited, uh, given uh, given the credit for introducing Darwinism, the origin of species, to America. Now, what's interesting is the guy who introduced Darwinism to America was an evangelical Christian. And what's really interesting is he saw, again, this natural theology 
he saw this in his own theology as evidence for the existence of God. He saw that the very process by which humans arrived is a very self-enclosed you know, system that doesn't require tinkering. Doesn't this beautiful system that, you know, basically a giant machine that creates new organisms essentially is what you might, what might imagine it as. That's how he imagined the evolutionary process. Doesn't that bespeak to the glory of the creator? Doesn't that, doesn't the very fact that such a mechanism works so brilliantly and perfectly bespeak of a universe that just seems, that seems like sort of uh, designed, built for life from the very get-go to build life itself? That's, that's an awesome machine. That's better than having a God who comes in and individually create individual creatures and has to interfere all the time. So that was his theology. And so he read teleology into his system and had conversations with Darwin because at this point, Darwin himself had moved away from that point. So Darwin himself was quite uncomfortable with this. But it does. It shows you two competing views of Darwin's own idea. And both saw this, you know, both accepted the evidence as it was. But from the very earliest stages, we're seeing that theologians were accepting of this. And Louis Agassiz, who had a very different theology, he was lump, he was considered one of Darwin's greatest opponents and hugely you know, spent a, major, a massive amount of time combating the ideas of natural selection because of theological reasons, along with scientific reasons. Again, it's hard to disambiguate this. And he was, oddly enough, a liberal Christian, if you could even call him that. He was a Unitarian, so he denied the Trinity. He denied the historical Adam, the Genesis flood. So he had no reason. He wasn't a fundamentalist. Darwin's biggest opponent in America wasn't a fundamentalist. It was a liberal who was trying to preserve a more Lamarckian view of evolution. So again, you have this odd juxtaposition where it's the conservative evangelicals who are saying, no, you know, we for theological reasons saying, no, we want to keep Darwinism. And then you have the theological liberals saying, no, no, get away from Darwinism. So, you know, David Livingston has this wonderful book. It's called Darwin's Forgotten Defenders, where he basically just goes out and shows how much that um, uh, conservative Protestants, especially of a Calvinist bent, uh, were really drawn to Darwin the Darwin's theory. That's out there. So just to be clear, and, you know, you mentioned this, but the, so Agis, Agassi. Agassi. Yeah. So Agassi, he was a Christian Unitarian, but he didn't believe in evolution on uh, theological grounds, but not on exegetical grounds. Is that right? So he denied the literal interpretation of Genesis, wow. but he wanted, he was very, actually, he was more a vicious opponent of a literal interpretation of Genesis than virtually any anyone else out there at the time hated it but he's also darwin's greatest denier we you know in america at the time so but it was because he saw lamarckism this other idea as better fitting with his own theological framework and with the evidence as well he of course you know he, he made arguments from both because again there's no disambiguation if, between these two ideas people believe it or not people then wanted to have a holistic worldview they wanted to include everything as evidence in their arguments. So that's something we don't do today. We're very specialized and distinct. If you're talking biology, stick to biology, you know, don't don't mix this up. But that wasn't, even though there was attempts to do this, no one could draw the line at the time. And so you see a very different approach than you do today. Right. So um, so in, the, in around the 1920s, I believe it is, uh, the fundamentals came out. And that was basically, well, maybe you could give us a brief overview, like what it was about. And 
Um, of course, you had all these different views of evolution during the time. Can you talk about like how evolution, how important that was to the people during the of the fundamentals during that time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the the fundamentalists, right? Because it's usually seen as biblical fundamentalists versus the the evolutionists or something. You know, you might say, or the scientific, the scientifically minded. You know, however you want to put it, it's always the biblical fundamentalists who were the antagonists. So let's see. Let's let's test and see historically how true and authentic that is to the history. When you get back to what the fundamentalists were named after, the fundamentals, which is this 12 volume set of works written uh, written around right after uh, World War One, what was their major concern? Was it Darwinism? Well, as it turns out, it wasn't. In, in fact, many of the main contributors to uh, the fundamentals, such as B.B. Warfield, the great conservative Princeton theologian of the 20th century, maybe the greatest, conservative uh, theologian of the 20th, American theologian of the 20th century. He was an avid advocate of Darwinism. And he was one of the authors of the fundamentals, the thing that became the fundamentalist movement. James Orr complimented Darwin, said he was one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. Uh, sorry, that R.A. Torrey did. R.A. Torrey did, who was the main editor for the fundamentals. The main editor was sympathetic with Darwin. He ultimately rejected Darwinism because the scientific community at the time did, which is one of the funniest ironies, you know, one of the funniest things you would expect from the thing that would become the fundamentalist. Now, in full disclosure, people were allowed, uh, individual contributors were allowed to talk about Darwinism. So we do, out of this 12-volume set, have two small minor articles that do argue against Darwinism at the time, which again, at the, at the time, the scientific consensus was against it. But a lot of the objections that they did have were against Darwinism as social Darwinism. So social Darwinism is the application of Darwin's theory to our everyday life, survival of the fittest, say, in economics, or perhaps the worst application of this was the Nazi extermination of the Jews. That's probably the worst example of social Darwinism. And so after World War I, after there was a lot of application of Darwinism to our people, uh, our superior, we need to go to war. There was a lot of authorship of that time. There was a huge pushback to social Darwinism. And because of that, Darwinism itself, which is why around the 1920s, you saw uh, a movement of people begin to push back to Darwinism because of the implications they saw. I didn't expect you to end on that sentence. <laughs> All right, you're good. <laughs> um, wow, that's extremely fascinating. So so that was in the 19 early 1920s, right? Yeah. Okay, early right 1920s. After World War I. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when would you say that, you know, real organization against Darwinism came about? Right. So th this is the million dollar question. Okay, so there were some Christians that you can locate in history who opposed Darwinism, but there were also scientists, right? So when it came down to it, if we were to evaluate history and to be honest, it was Christians were as much or more in favor of Darwinism than they really have ought to have been. Dennis Alexander has a great quotation about how shocking it is, how much Christians were were to blame to blame right for the success of Darwinism and its continual uh, hmm. being put placed into the conversation because of people who wanted to see the success of Darwinism. Because you know, again, B.B. Warfield and people uh, into other individuals like him saw it as a form of of biological Calvinism, right? So they kept it alive. They kept it alive. There were, again, 
I'll keep going back to Charles Hodges, George Myvart, who I've brought up before. He was an opponent to Darwinian evolution. And there's a few others that you can sort of locate throughout history. Very minor figures that don't represent the majority. Where opposition really took off was the 1960s. Around the centennial of Darwin, 1959, 100 years after the origin of species, as happens, it happened again in 2009 at the 150th anniversary, a ton of books on Darwinism got published, symposiums, all these things that sort of come together and celebrate Darwinism. And one of the main things to come out of that was our view that Darwinism itself opposed any sort of teleological purpose-driven, uh, uh, purpose proposed of like Asa Gray, this idea of purpose being able to be read into Darwin's theory. It was seen as a sort of death nail to that, that was read back into history. That became the sort of dominant interpretation of the time. Now, prior to that, there wasn't this sort of reading. It was always seen as sort of ambiguous, right? Darwin and Asa Gray disagreed on how to interpret it. And so did Alfred Russell Wallace, right? Al Co-discoverer of, of, of natural selection, saw teleology in it. So there was always this ambiguous relationship between them. But after that fact, after that fact, that's whenever you saw the reaction from the Christian community. And that's when fundamentalism took an anti-evolutionary turn because they saw it and rightly saw it as attacking religious faith. So we saw a very rightward conservative, uh, rightward, rightward move in conservative faith with the publication of the Genesis Flood by Henry Morris in 1961, two years after the centennial. And from there, the young earth creationism was born and it was, and boy, was it born because now, you know, you have something like 40% of Americans who deny evolutionary theory. Uh, I've, although recent studies have shown that the number has gone down, obviously, and I, this this somewhat pains me to say, Answers in Genesis is the largest apologetics organization on the planet. So after, you know, like, just let that sink in. It, it, it's tough to sink in, but they are. They have more, they're better funded. I mean, you don't see, you don't see uh, other apologetic organizations building an ark or building a Tower of Babel, which I find the most ironic thing in the world. But we'll leave that aside. Um, but yeah, so young earth creationism now has become a sort of self-perpetuating organism that, that in order to sort of protect the faith, they've taken the elements that they see as attacking it and then made them sort of essential elements of the faith. And, you know, Ken Ham young, and, uh, Answers in Genesis, Institutes for Creation Research are very overt that they think that all biblical foundation, that all biblical, major biblical doctrines are grounded in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. All major biblical doctrines find their basis in life. So to lose them, you lose Christianity. And so it's sort of, it's doing exactly, it's the flip side. What's ironic is it's the flip side of what exactly the anti-religious anti people are doing. It's saying, you're right. Everything is, religion is based on the first 11 chapters, but we're right. We're just not wrong. That's the only difference is it's accepting that this, uh, and sort of reading back into history, that the debate has always centered on the first 11 chapters of Genesis and Christians have always sort of held this because without it, you lose the foundation for why Christianity could even be true. And that's completely anachronistic. It's completely false to history. That's out there. Well, awesome. All right, Seth, I appreciate you coming on here today. And I think people are going to get a lot out of this. Um, is there anything that you want to like, do you have a website or uh, any, any idea, any chance of starting a YouTube channel anytime soon? <laughs> 
I, I usually just colonize people like yours as a YouTube channel. I'm real appreciative of it. So I, I don't have a YouTube channel, unlikely with finishing the PACL started, but go to Capturing Christianity, check out those articles. I'm going to continue to keep publishing on that site. So, and reach out to me on Facebook um, if you have any questions, but really appreciate you, Zach. Awesome. I appreciate you, man. I hope you have a good day. You too. Take care. Thank you.